Another player season review today. It's Andrew Nembhard time, the rookie guard who, what a season he had going from out of the rotation, second round pick to an integral starter for this team. What does that mean for the Pacers, his future, and how did he do this year? Caitlin Cooper is going to join us. We're breaking it all down again today on the Locked On Pacers podcast. You are Locked On Pacers, your daily Indiana Pacers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. of the Locked On Pacers podcast, where we, of course, talk about the Indiana Pacers. As always, my name is Tony East. I cover the team for Forbes and SI. And today, diving into the season of Andrew Nemhard. Two more of these uh, season reviews to go. Nemhard today, Tyrese Halliburton next week. What a season it was for Nemhard. Drafted 31st out of the rotation on opening night. Not really sure what his role would be. Turns into a needed defender and a growing point guard for this Pacers team. Caitlin Cooper from Basketball She Wrote, as she has been, will be joining us for this one once again. One stat, one clip, one over-under to define Nembard's season and look ahead for him and what he could mean for this Pacers. Spoiler alert, I'm very high on him and his future. Let's just get right to it. Caitlin Cooper is back, which can only mean one thing. We're relitigating the Sabonis Halliburton trade. Just kidding. We will not be doing that. Uh, it's player season review time. Andrew Nembard on the docket today. I'm very excited to talk about his rookie season. Man, did he surprise me. DMP the first game. I wasn't sure if he'd be in the rotation. Didn't seem like a spot for him. By the end of the season, integral part of their day-to-day game-to-game operation. Did you see that coming, Caitlin? I did not. In fact, whenever it was preseason... I had noticed during those couple handful of games, I was like, wow, you know, he's pretty adept at going to his left. They even run action for him to go to his left. That'd be a cool story to write about his weak hand strengths and what he does and how much comfortable he is going that way. Like, I better get that out because I don't know if he's going to be in the rotation when the regular season starts. So <laughs> I wrote it in between preseason and the regular season. And as it turns out, you know, he was, they found ways to get him in. I think I remember pretty vividly when they played the Spurs in like the third game of the year that they put him out there when they were full court pressing at the end of that game and put him in the top of it. yeah yeah and he like was playing a vital role in the press defense and then not too long after you know chris was starting then it was neesmith and then you know andrew finds his way into the starting lineup gets that big stop against tyler hero in the heat and from there on out he was pretty much part of the rotation and the starting unit yeah in summer league i remember the only things i had clipped from him were just like i thought his passing and traffic in the lane was so good right so it's like okay this point guard skill Perhaps he could be good at that in the NBA. And then it was like everything else <laughs> that made him so valuable to the team between the perimeter defense and the ability to kind of play off ball as their third guard that made him an absolutely fantastic starter fit for what they needed and why I feel like he's just a really good fit for this group because he can play so many positions at at least a decent level already. Yeah, the velocity, you bringing that up about Summer League, the velocity he gets on left-handed skip passes and his location and accuracy throwing those skip passes is pretty impressive. I do apologize to everyone because I think that I wrote about Andrew Nemhard this season more than any other pacer. Like, I remember writing after his game winner about his defense against LeBron. I wrote about the left-handed stuff during preseason. I wrote again about him after the Warriors game and then 
here when I switched to Patreon, I wrote about some of the stuff that he's taken from quirkiness that he's taken from Tyrese Halliburton, how the two of them can run offense similarly while being completely different in the way they move around the court. So I, it's not a negative thing. It's just the thing that he needs to work on is my first clip here. So I'll just go ahead and just launch right into it. They're playing the Pistons in Detroit and old friend Corey Joseph is guarding him at the point of attack. And, Andrew rejects the screen and just drives into the space and gets Corey on his back. Wiseman's in the lane guarding and O'Shea's dotting the right strong ball side corner. And instead of continuing to put pressure on the rim, Andrew stops in the paint where he likes to outside the non-restricted area and kind of manipulates Corey a little bit and then pulls up for the two instead of, for me, like there's, there's opportunity there for him to continue moving North South and either forcing Wiseman to make a decision between him and Isaiah Jackson and throwing the lob or drawing the corner man over and potentially finding O'Shea, which O'Shea wasn't the best shooter this year. But this kind of speaks to the ongoing battle for Andrew, which I think is going to be most important for him is his willingness to attack the basket in the rim. On that one specifically too, it almost feels like if he just kept his dribble, even if he was where he stopped, like it would have just been more threatening for what he could have done. Because like I said, I think his passing in traffic, even with large people around him, which there were a couple there, is pretty good. So, like, just having the option, if you if you take one more hard dribble and Wiseman even lunges at you, just throw it up as high as you can. Isaiah Jackson's going to dunk. Or I can't tell who this weak side defender is, uh, in this, or a strong side defender is, excuse me, guarding Brissett. Maybe it's Eugene Amarui. I only say that because he, I felt like, was there were like six of him in this game. Um, but if it was him, right, drawing him in one more step to kick to O'Shea would have felt like a better plan. I get why he feels like he has a shot because Corey Joseph's on his hip and Wiseman's sitting so low. But at the same time, he's got better skills than that shot specifically. And I think he knows that too, but it's hard to kind of get out of autopilot when you feel like you've created a shot and it's right there in front of you. Yeah, because what's so interesting about him is he finished 68% of his shots at the rim. And in part, I think that's because he is so overly selective because he only attempted yeah. 20% of his shots at the rim, which is less than Tyrese, who, you know, we know Tyrese loves the floater and doesn't always get all the way to the basket and is pretty effective at that. But in this case, like he's, he's basically letting Corey back in front of him and the pressure that he put coming off of halftime against the Bucks and the game when he started at point guard changed that game. Like his willingness to be pushing the ball up the floor in transition, to be attacking Giannis when Brooke Lopez wasn't playing, when Giannis was in foul trouble, it absolutely changed their ability to erase or to build what that was that lead over those final 15 minutes of the game. So I feel like for him, and I'll just go into the one number, like I don't want to skip too far ahead because we'll talk <laughs> a lot about his defense later, but it, it fits here. The number is 14.7, and that's the number of potential assists he averaged over the 19 games in which he started at point guard, which means Ooh. TJ or Tyrese wasn't in the lineup. That is an absurd number. And here's why, wow. because he's not a person putting a lot of pressure on the rim. He shoots 39% on pull-up twos and 28% on pull-up threes. And he's still averaging that number of assists because that's what his high level processing is. He's that adept of a passer. So just for people to know for frame of reference, here's the number of people in the NBA who averaged 14.7 potential assists per game this year. Tyrese Halliburton, Trey Young, James Harden, Chris Paul, Nikola Jokic, and Luka Doncic. So some of that number is a little bit inflated because obviously when he played Portland and we played Golden State, he was literally the only ball handler available. So he was going to be the one 
racking up tons of direct scoring opportunities. But I broke it down game by game by game, and there was only two games where he averaged less than 10. So his feel for the oh, game man. as a rookie, I mean, everybody kept saying that over the summer. I don't think we fully saw it in summer league to the extent that we did over the back end of the season because this isn't just him only getting assists as a product of the offense. He, there was creation assists, advantage assists, manipulation, where we saw that, like, yeah, Will Barton's guarding him in Toronto, but he's running Spain pick and rolls, and he'll, you know, look at the stack screener, and then he has miles wide open under the basket. You know, there was eye manipulation. There's head fakes there. Um, I just really like his command of the offense, especially over the back end of the season. As far yeah, the as back, the back end of the season is kind of where I feel like the discussion about his future starts for me, like Halberton plays that Houston game that somehow went to overtime. That was, that was one of the <laughs> ugliest games ever. Um, and Nambar only played 25 minutes in that game, 25 and a half for the rest of the season. He only played less than 25 once, right? They needed him way more because Halberton missed a bunch of games. Then McConnell missed some games. And even when Halberton did play, he was still playing a lot like off the ball in Toronto or, in, or I don't think Halberton played that game, but Boston, Atlanta, right? Those two. And he averaged over seven assists, even in that stretch with very few of their better players available and over 15 points per game and hit almost 50% of his shots and hit over 40% of his threes. And I don't think that's the player he will be forever, but that was so impressive to me where, especially if you isolate it from that Bucks game onward, where he's even talked about how that halftime speech, like it didn't totally click for him. He still had some moments where he wasn't playing like that, but like it really registered like what he can do to be more effective and keep things moving and how much rim pressure is valuable for a point guard. His scoring went up. His accuracy was better 50% from the field from that Bucks game to the end of the season. This is 13 games, right? We're talking about can't do math, but almost 15% of the season at that point where he was lights out as a scorer, passer and shooter. And like that is huge for what he can be going forward. If that is actually an indicator of what he can, what he can do. Hey guys, short little break here so I could talk to you about eBay Motors. For a championship team, it's all about making sure every player is a perfect fit. It's the same when it comes to your vehicle. Every part needs to fit just right. So the next time you need parts and accessories, head to eBay Motors. With eBay Guaranteed Fit, you can be sure every part you need fits right the first time around. Just add your ride to My Garage and look for the green check to know the part will fit or your money back. Because just like in sports, confidence is the name of the game when you shop on eBay Motors. And with over 122 million parts to choose from, you'll be back in the game in no time. After all, it's easy to bring home a win when the right parts are guaranteed. Get the right parts, the right fit, and the right prices on ebaymotors.com. Let's ride! eBay guaranteed fit, only available to U.S. customers, eligible items only, exclusions apply. And I think that in large part that it is, because like if we look at the three, just like subbing out the three-point attempts... There was a middle stretch of the season where he played 22 games around the time when Tyrese got hurt, where he only shot 22% on catch-and-shoot threes. Otherwise, the first 23 games of the season, he shot 40%, and the last uh, chunk, he shot 43%. So if you, ch- if you take out those 22 where he ended up getting sick, was starting in front of Tyrese, seemed like he was hitting a little bit of the rookie wall when he shot 22%. The rest of the year, he shot over 40 
as a catch and shoot shooter. Now he does adjust his footwork a little bit. Like you can see it. Sometimes he's a hop step shooter. Sometimes he's a one, two tap shooter. Um, sometimes the elevation changes when he's a hop shooter. And maybe that was impacting why his shooting percentage dipped. Maybe they tinkered with something a little bit. And then that's why it was able to come back up. I don't know because his release is pretty low. I'm not exactly a shot doctor to be really breaking down the mechanics of his release completely. But otherwise, like he, he shot decently enough away from the ball. To me, it comes down to, like you, you said, it wasn't always perfect for him. Like when he played the Hornets in that fourth quarter, like he wasn't necessarily making the best decisions in terms of where yeah. he was taking shots and where he got them. I think he finished like, you know, one of four, one of six in that fourth quarter. But then, you know, the very next game he goes to Toronto and they end up switching the matchup. Will Barton was guarding him. Then they put Fred Van Vliet on him and he was just making, he was just reading it. Like all, all he needed in that game was either a double drag or a Spain pick and roll. And he was making something happen. And to see him throw in that 30 foot bomb with Pascal Siakam on him, like Pascal Siakam isn't always the most lateral guy in on ball situations, but he is pretty intimidating. And to see him just be like, you know what? I'm going to back this up to 30 feet and I'm going to let this go. Like we talk about how confident Benedict is. I don't think we always talk about it as much with Andrew. And that was definitely one of those moments in addition to what he did against Golden State and making the game winner against the Lakers. That was a funny stretch. Funny is the wrong word, but like of his season because that Hornets game, for people who don't remember, they were tied for 10th that day, right? So there was a lot of like play in talk. Like if they go on a nice road trip here and Halliburton returns, like are they going to get 10th? They're right there with the Bulls. And they lost that Hornets game, and Nembard's fourth quarter was one of his worst games or stretches, I guess, since the All-Star break at that point. And a lot of people were like, well, why is he out there so much? What is he doing? You know, he wh- Why are people so high on this guy? And then two days later in Toronto was one of his best games of the season. And so everybody said, that's why, this is why people are high on him. But they were kind of, kind of, the, the talk around the team had changed so much from that Hornets loss and the play and change that I think people kind of just, didn't notice that he had 25 and 10 two days later and was the best player on the court. And maybe that's reductive of me to say that their situation mattered so much, but that, that back to back, I think was telling, and he was pretty solid for the rest of the season. Even after that, I think in Boston, Halburn returned and he went to more off ball, but in general, I thought he was really good for whatever you want to call that. The last two or three weeks of the season after that Charlotte game where he, he, he did all those things that you said. And to your point about catch and shoots, like I thought that was telling at his ex interview. I'm sure you heard it where he said that that was one of the biggest things he wants to work on this summer is getting that up to about 40% or what. I don't forget if he, if he put a percentage on it. I think he said 40, but just like in general, it, yeah, him playing point guard is going to happen. Some, someone has to play when Halliburton's out, but if he's going to start and play next to Tyrese Halliburton, that is critically important because if he can even accentuate their identity by being able to put it on the floor and make plays and shoot when he's open, that's so big for how he fits with what the Pacers do and would like to do. Yeah, because I think I do remember that conversation around that Hornets game because I believe that was one of my mailbag questions where people were like, you know, why is he so inconsistent? You know, why is there so much variance within games to him and from game to game? And I'm like, well, in that game, the Hornets started out blitzing the pick and rolls with Nemhard and he was picking it apart, you know, like what I said before, like if Buddy's the stack screener, he'd look at Buddy. Gordon Hayward would rush at Buddy and then he'd throw it to Miles. Like Miles had a very strong start to the beginning of that game in part because of Andrew. Well, as the game went on, they got less aggressive and went into more conservative drop. And then that's kind of where he ended up allowing himself to get stranded from mid-range a little bit where you do want to see him perhaps make a little bit different decisions. But yeah, to 
to tack on to your catch and shoot thing. I'm slightly different because for me, I kind of feel like, you know, if he is going to continue to be in the starting lineup, which I think we'll get to his defense, but I think for defensive purposes, especially if Benedict's going to be starting, you kind of need Andrew in the starting lineup to be taking on some of the tougher assignments, depending yeah. on who they get at the four spot is I wouldn't mind like his scoring limitations don't necessarily warrant siphoning pick and rolls to from Tyrese to this point in time, because of what Tyrese is a shooter. He's one of the best pick and roll creators in the NBA, but I, I almost feel like in the long term it's going to be good for both of them if they let Andrew do some more secondary ball handler type stuff. I mean, we see this in the playoffs every year where, you know, if your offense is run predominantly through only one guy, that makes it tough when teams really start using exaggerated coverages against you. So if they have another person like Andrew on the on the court at the same time as Tyrese, I think that can only be good for both of them. Now, I'm not saying you tilt all of the offense to him. That's not going to be, you know, the long-term vision. But, you know, if you're not willing to do some of that, you're almost, to me, capping some of what Andrew's ceiling can be. Because otherwise, like, you're kind of locking him into being a backup point guard. And even now, like, is he going to be a backup point guard when TJ's still on the roster? Like, I really like what Andrew's potential is personally for me. Um, because I think he gives you a pretty solid floor just with his processing and his defense. But I think... I will add on one number, which isn't the the number that I picked. That was obviously potential assist, but the Pacers did not win the minutes when Nemhard was out there at solo point. That was like 673 minutes, and they did have a pretty solidly negative net rating. Really negative. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to what was the case with Tyrese and Nemhard. Now, I didn't drill that down to just the last like eight games because obviously the stretch when Tyrese was out for the 10 games, when Nemhard's shot wasn't falling, and when he ended up getting sick and then coming back in to kind of come off the bench when they were starting TJ was was the roughest spot of Andrew's season. So that might have impacted why it was as negative as, as it was. But Yeah, we've talked about the stats from those games on a few of these reviews, and I'm just like, what, what was their defensive rating for the last three weeks? Yeah. Is that a real number? Uh, you know who else is a fan of, of Andrew Nembart's potential? Rick Carlisle. And that matters a great deal, obviously, here, right? Like, after the... Oh, I just wrote this. I got another Mavs. They played the Mavs in that home game and they got smoked, right? They I forget exactly what they lost by. It was over 20 points. And he played 37 minutes and was a plus five, right? Like he was really good. He kept them organized. He played great defense. He came out and they were the worst team in the NBA for 11 minutes, right? Like he was huge that game. And after that game, you know, Rick was asked about him. He said, I think, you know, I, he should be a top 10 pick in this draft if we went back. Like he is also very high on injured Nimbard, which matters a lot and makes me believe. They're going to try to find him opportunities to do many things if they are high on him and what he can do and how he can be whatever, secondary, tertiary, backup, primary, whatever for this team next year. And he's shown glimpses that he can do all of those things in spurts. And I, I question if it's going to be really difficult for him if he has to toggle between roles in one game. I think that can be hard from an approach standpoint. But if he can do that, that's obviously very significant. Yeah, because I do want to touch on the defense just a little bit since I didn't pick that as a clip because that was kind of a question I got on Twitter a lot before that Raptors game where people were kind of like, I just don't see the impact. It seems like he gives up a lot of blow-bys or whatever. And I'm like, well, in part, I don't think there's anybody on the roster who can flip their hips more quickly than him, which the Pacers want to ice all their side pick and rolls. That's how they defend that. 
he flips his hips so quickly to be able to, to negate screens. He had like a really iconic possession against the Blazers where he did that against Dame, forced him away from the screen twice and then ran the seam against Nurkic and then was able to also smash down on the glass and help people get the rebound there. Like there's so many possessions you can point to where he does little things in the shadows. It doesn't even have to be like, you know, him getting the stop against Tyler Hero. It's he's playing the Toronto Raptors and he's guarding Pascal Siakam and Siakam guards cuts off a back pick at the elbow and he switches with Benedict Matherin and now he's defending Fred Van Vliet. And now, you know, Neesmith's guarding Pirtle. Pirtle comes and sets a screen and he switches onto Pirtle and he'll motion for Miles Turner to take Pirtle and scram him out of it. And on one possession, he's guarded the Raptors three best players who are available in that game. Plus whoever he scrammed out to the corner on. And that's with him recognizing that all of that needs to happen. Or, you know, he'll be playing the Lakers and he'll be fronting LeBron and there'll be a drive from the 45 cut and he'll, jump onto that drive and tell O'Shea, hey, peel switch, get on, to a, get on to LeBron, and then he'll jump off when that guy has to kick out to the shooter in the corner, and it's Austin Reeves, and he'll close out, and Austin Reeves will travel. Like, there's so many possessions where he has a presence all over the court on the defensive end where I just don't think all of that shows up all of the time because it's not necessarily, you know, him getting a steal or a block or shutting somebody down on the perimeter. It's him reading the game. And a lot of what Andrew does is up here that I don't think always gets a ton of attention. Cause I do agree with people like one matchup that really bothered him defensively this year was against Tyrese Maxey and that game against Philadelphia in part because they were having to send so much attention to Joel Embiid. They're having to pinch so far in that him then getting back out to Ty- to Maxey punching a gap was pretty hard for him. And they ran some complex screening actions. If he gets caught in a DHO with a pin down, there's times where he'll get spun out and he won't be able to stay in front. But like, when we think about it, like it was easy for the two of us to try to like somewhat excuse Benedict's defense and be like, you know what? Rookies just always aren't all that good at defense. And then you watch Andrew Nemhard and it's like, he's pretty advanced for what you would expect from a rookie on that end of the floor. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. How much time do you spend on yourself in a given week? And how much do you spend it to other people? And how important is it to balance those two? It's so easy to get caught up in what everyone else needs from you and never take a moment to think about what's needed from yourself. But when we spend all of our time giving, it can feel as feeling stretched thin and burned out. Therapy can give you the tools to find more balance in life so you can keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. Therapy can be helpful for anybody. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills, setting boundaries, and empowering you to be the best version of yourself. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash MBA to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MBA. I think he's almost advanced for like... <laughs> And a lot of playing in general, like yeah. I don't even have to use the the rookie word there. That's why I still go with the oh Matherin's rookie thing and don't do that for Nemhard because he was good like in general, like for all players. I talked with you about this on this show a little bit before, but like what I always don't understand about how Nembard can defend and do is like his right arm's up and his left arm is down, and then his man will cross over and he'll switch them, and then one the other one's down, the other one's up, and then he'll turn his angle and the other one. It's like. How is that not exhausting to do for a whole game? And he could do it the whole game and keep the right hand in the guy's face or cut off a certain passing angle or whatever it is. It's very impressive because you have to know where other guys are on the court too, not just the guy you're guarding. And he's very good at that. And I think 
to go back to the maxi thing, the, the hardest thing for him to, to develop is going to be, you know, he's not the quickest, right? His foot speed's not elite. So when he's on those shift, your guards, like I think Malcolm Brogdon struggled with this too, is, you know, keeping the right angles and, and positioning down so that, you, you have a half-step advantage already defensively because you're not as fast as that guy. They're just going to beat you if they drive full speed. You have to be ready for it, or you have to already create an advantage with your body some other way to stay with them. Like Brogdon, I already said this, but Brogdon had trouble with that at times. I thought among the many things he did well defensively, quicker guards just cooked him, and he could stay with some of the lateral speed guys. I think Nembard could be the same way. It's too early to say. He's only played for a year, uh, but he has ways he can mitigate that when he improves on that end. If well, he, yeah, because the one thing that he does is if he gets beat, like I said, he will late switch. So yeah. if he can't get back in front of the screen, he doesn't just die on the vine. He'll go, he'll run in front of the big and get into that big's legs and then, you know, communicate and Miles can take the guard in those types of situations, which, you know, a late switch suits Miles better than fully switching out to the ball on a screen. And Andrew, too, like there's nobody better on the team, I don't think, at making reads defensively in terms of when they need to communicate appeal switch or when they need to next a pick and roll. Like he's one of the few guys that will actually, you know, help over from the passer. If the guy gets beat, he'll jump onto the ball handler. And then the guy who's supposed to be in rear view pursuit runs to the next nearest guy on the perimeter and he will communicate that and do it. So, you know, even if he does get beat, there's ways to mitigate some of that where, you know, I just, I just think like a lot of times we think offensively, we think of reads on that end of the floor. We don't always think of him defensively and he, he does a lot um, in that regard. That, that part never really failed for him throughout the season. I thought that felt pretty steady. What his I always, was defensively. I always make the point that guys who can make the offensive reads, usually eventually it comes to the other end of the floor or vice versa. Like Ben Simmons came into the league as like this defensive, like I can see everything. And then eventually his offense caught up. That's part of why I think Halburn's such a good team defender, right? As he recognizes those offensive patterns and can translate that to defense. And I think the same will be the case for Nembard. If you have other defensive thoughts, please continue. But if not, we still have the over-under to do and many ramblings on Andrew Nembard. Yeah, I have the over-under. Let's just go ahead and get into that because it, it deals somewhat with his role. Um, Ooh, I okay. picked 18, and that's his average number of minutes played with Tyrese Halliburton next season. So just for a point of reference, he averaged 21 minutes per game with Tyrese this season. So if you pick the over, it's because you think that the two of them are going to play a lot together. If you pick the under, it's because you think that Andrew's going to be running more bench units, perhaps, or maybe they're going to draft somebody or do something else with the starting lineup. If they get the second pick under, if they get, I mean, I'm inclined to say over because I think McConnell's still going to, if he's on the team, which I mean, of the 30-some-year-old expiring contract dudes, which his is only kind of expiring, seems like the most likely to be back. Um, I, I assume he'll have a role if he's back on the team. He's still good. So in that way, I would think Nembard's role would involve playing more with Halliburton than McConnell would, and I'm inclined to say over. But, man, that's really tricky because I feel like you almost want to develop him as a one more aggressively next season if you're the Pacers in general. Uh but then you're sacrificing someone else's strengths who is, is talented right now. So that's hard to do. You're you're losing you're losing peak impact for someone, and it's probably better for that to be the 31-year-old than the 24-year-old. So maybe in that 18 is a really good number. Because <laughs> in my head, 15's too low, certainly. I, I think I'll take the over though. I think it's more likely that it makes sense to start him as the two and then just give him back up one minutes with then when you can. Uh, than anything else or whatever position. It doesn't matter with other guards. It makes more sense to start him than have him come off the bench. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it goes down to how much do you value having Andrew out there as much as possible with Tyrese to mitigate Tyrese from having to guard opposing teams' top right. options. Because when Andrew's out there, That's he's true. going to do it. Um, otherwise, like I said, Andrew kind of finds himself in a little bit of a conundrum because we go back to that potential assist number, and I just think, you know, <laughs> he has the ability to run point and run offense for a team, and if you're not developing that, are you fully maximizing what you can get from him? And then what is kind of the long term? Not that he can't play the combo guard role. I think he did that and he did it well. And I think his defense is valuable. But are you putting a ceiling on what he can be? So I picked 18 in part because that's what Miles and Sabonis played together um, a year ago. when they were ah, My Sabonis joke at the beginning was prescient. <laughs> I knew he'd come did up. have a role. <laughs> that, that's, the, you know, they, that was a, I think that was about the least they had played together since they had started both in the starting lineup because they wanted to get both of them minutes at the five at times. So um, I, I will probably pick the over, but I think it would be better in the long term if it is the under, because I just think you need to keep having Andrew have those types of reps so that if you do end up being a playoff team at one point in time, that he can run some offense and you can start possessions with Tyrese away from the ball. Not all the time, but I think that there is value in having as many people who can handle the ball and make those types of decisions as, as, as possible on the court. So, um, in, in my lazy action, speak louder than words, kind of team building viewpoint. I noted immediately how long Nembard's contract was compared to McConnell's when they signed him to that deal. Right. It, it looked like a good, this you're the backup. Now we'll transition a little next year. And then it's this guy. And then he's a restricted free agent. Like that seems like smart planning and good business, but, but then you have to do it <laughs> as it happens. And that starts next year. And they, again, they have restricted free agency. Like they can keep them as for a, a, longer for as long as they want, or as long as they can. And he is very happy to have been drafted here because he got to play a lot despite being picked in the second round. So it looks like that is the plan given the deal they gave him and given how they talk about him and given how he was praised in camp last year, like they were, they were high on him right away. Right. And they backed that up with how much they played him. So what does that look like next year? And then this is more of a question about McConnell for me, really, because he was good. We talked about him on the last episode. He's a good player. He adds value to the Pacers. But how much do they view that as important to them going forward beyond his current contract or even beyond the current iteration of the Pacers? That's kind of what this question is to me a little bit, too. Yeah. And and can you as well, like from a veteran standpoint, if you, if it gets to be, you know, midway through July and they're like, we do have a roster spot, let's retain George Hill and what he's meant to this franchise and that he was a player who was here the last time we were in the playoffs. Can he fulfill some of that role? Because I'm of the opinion that I would still start Andrew Nemhard pending who they draft and I would stagger them as much as possible. So they're both getting point guard reps last year. They played 51% of their minutes together. I think that there's value of starting and closing with Andrew because of what he brings defensively. But I think that you have to keep optimizing what he can do as a one. And I, I'm not looking this far in advance, but like, because if another team were interested and they were going to do like what they've said they've done, we've gone harder after two guys than we ever have. <laughs> like another team's going to value what Andrew can do running yeah. offense. So you got to, you got to be able to show that. I agree with that. And and it could kind of to, to go back to what Pritchard said at his ex interview, like he talked about the, the parallel track, what 
whatever phrase walking in parallel i think is what he said yeah so that they can keep all of their options open for as long as turning ships optionality parallel lines kevin pritchardism (laughs) for what they're trying to do right i love i love the way he describes their team building steps i always smile um you know if they end up on a more competitive path it might be harder for that number to be over right whereas if they end up on a more okay, we couldn't do that big trade thing that you just brought up and that they've said, and they're on more of a development path and their two core guys are 23 and 21 and Nembard's 24 to start next season, then maybe the answer is under and they lean in more to his development at a position it seems like he'll play more long-term. Does that make sense? Yep. I think we're on the same page. But (laughs) that depends on what path they end up on and that's unknown. And you're asking me right now. You're not asking me on July 10th. So I That's why all these over-unders are going to look pretty silly, I feel, in about (laughs) two months from now, potentially. I actually thought of this like way after we did the O'Shea one when you said the over-under of one game played for the Pacers. Like he signs with a different team and then gets traded to the Pacers mid-season. Imagine that bad beat we would have in that case. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I will take the over because I think it's more likely – but I think it's very obvious what the difference would be there. And it would be very telling on what they think of what he will be when they're at their best with this core. But we'll see. That that concludes what I've prepared for Andrew <laughs> Nemhard. Okay. Well, I am very intrigued by him for this reason alone. I wanted to bring this up a little bit. Okay. Something I think about with the Pacers sometimes, and I get that they desperately need forwards and size. Like uh, I've watched them for years and years. When Hal Burton's combination of playmaking and shooting is a big look, he's a genius. Like he's amazing for a reason, but like as part of the reason he's so talented is like there's not a great way to guard him. You're giving up something, and so I've always thought like among the additions they need, I almost think either a player who can also playmake and shoot, or the development of one of their established ball handlers being able to do both would I think make the bridge easier for them playing their identity when Halliburton is out of the game. And I think Nembard is the best chance of anyone on the team to be that guy, whether that's him developing his pull-up a little more or just becoming slightly better as a playmaker, even though, like you said, there's reason to think he's already there. And so I think he's really good now. I think I'm higher on him than a lot of the fan base is. But I think if the if the three-pointer specifically comes around to like a, a somewhat threatening level, 37 38% next year, I'll be extremely high on what he can do for the Pacers just because you could play him with Halberton. And then when Halberton comes out, you're not sacrificing your style as much as you would be because he could do those things. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, especially with how the way he pushed the pace, like we said, whenever we were talking about that game against Milwaukee, if he continues to do that, then yeah, you you can maintain that. In addition, like what you just said, like if he can continue to develop the pull-up whether from two or from three, because the percentage wasn't good at either one. Think how much more that opens up his passing. If he can already average 14.7 potential assists at the point when TJ and Tyrese aren't out there, look how much easier it's going to be if he has a guy in rear view pursuit or if the big's playing him closer. Because, I mean, like I said, he picked apart that Hornets coverage in the first quarter. That's why Miles started off as strong as he did, is because the Hornets decided that they were going to you know, put two on the ball and force the ball out of his hands. And then they relaxed it as the game went on. So um, it could just be easier for him. Like I, people know I've been very uh, pro what Andrew Nemhard can do throughout the season. I know that that feels like a little reductive because like, duh, if a player is better at shooting and passing, they're a better player. <laughs> what? But like specifically with the way the Pacers play and what it looks like they would like to be doing at their best, I think he's the best internal candidate 
to be that player I've described. And that's why I think investing in him and pouring into him a little bit in multiple roles is so important because he can do that thing. And of course, just high level, like positional versatility is obviously very helpful for a team that has a lot of guys who are like, what, what position are you going to play next year? What lineup should you be in? Yeah, I mean, it is. it will be interesting to see if they're starting Andrew, Benedict, and Tyrese together. We saw that as a closing lineup in several yep. games where the three of them were out there. But in terms from the start is who will get what types of assignments. And if Benedict's own catch and shoot, what we talked about on his episode two weeks ago, if his catch and shoot numbers don't turn around and he's doing more on ball, you know, how that would impact Andrew. Because there is a difference between what Buddy does away from the ball and what Benedict currently does away from the ball. They run a lot of the same actions for the two of them to get to the ball, but the way that both of them use those actions isn't exactly the same. So that's something that I'll be intrigued to see if all three of them are out there at once. Um, Because, I mean, like you said, I mean, to go back to what we started off the beginning of this episode, when when we were doing these episodes last summer, when I was doing them with Mark, the assumption was not that Andrew Nemard would be the person that was going to be starting in those spots. We thought it would be Chris Duarte. Right. So, and Andrew very made it clear, like not that Chris Duarte's defense was, you know, horrible this season or last, but like what Andrew can do defensively was more valuable and he brings the playmaking. Whereas if Andrew's shot doesn't fall, there's still a chance that he's going to finish in, you know, in the plus that the Pacers will win those minutes. Whereas on our prior episode, I laid out that there were not very many games this year where if Chris didn't make a three, that they won the minutes with Chris Duarte on the floor. And that's not all about Chris. Obviously that has to do with lineups and what another team's doing, but Andrew can still do things even if his shot isn't falling at the same clip as it did during that chunk of games that we identified earlier. I'm going to pay a voice actor for a soundboard clip that just says lazy analysis. So every time I'm about to say something dumb, I can just hit the button before. I'm going to do it again. I'd be curious what the Pacers think of the 312 minutes they got with all three of Nembard, Matherin, and Halliburton. Because that's a small sample, but the numbers are like, oh my God, your offense is unstoppable. Like Their offensive rating was nearly 120, but again, that's an exceedingly small sample. Like They almost shot 40% from three in those minutes. That's how small of a sample it was. So if they believe that it can be that, not that potent, that's the best offense ever, but like really good, maybe they are okay playing them all together, even if they do want to go for a little more next year. Yeah, I don't don't have those groupings in front of me, but my guess is that some of that was in the early portion of the season. Like for one game, I vividly remember them closing out the game against the Heat with all three of them on the floor and Buddy was playing as well. Like there were certain games where they were willing to play really small and they played Buddy with them and then that gave spacing around the three of them in addition to um, what else they were doing. So I don't know what the most used group was, but if I had to guess, it was Miles, Buddy, Tyrese, Andrew, and Benedict. If only I was on a website that could tell me that. Give me a moment. I did the wowie <laughs> combos instead of wowies. That is the nerdiest sentence ever said on the podcast. <laughs> I did the wowie combos instead of the wowies. If anyone knows what I just said, you are good at finding basketball stats on the internet. Congratulations. Uh, okay, the most used lineup with all three of Nembard, Halliburton, and what was your guess? I was going to guess Buddy and Miles. Buddy and Turner? Yeah. That is correct by a significant amount, 114 of those 312 minutes. Yes, good job. Yeah. Can you give me second? If I had to guess, Neesmith and place a buddy. (laughs) Okay. How many in a row can you get right? (laughs) (laughs) The next one's less than 30 minutes. There's no point in making you do this. Uh, The answer was Jalen Smith instead of Turner from the first one. But yeah, so that is a very potent group. Can that, is that something they go back to? 
are all five of those guys on the team next year? That'll be big questions that kind of dictate Nembard's role and effectiveness, I think. I'm out of stuff now. That was the end of my my. I think, I think we've concluded. This is the last rookie pod. I'm sad. <laughs> I, I'm sad that I won't get to call them rookies next year. And expectations are coming for these guys and the Pacers. And I think that's a big True. part of their next season, too. As we saw with Chris Duarte, right? Like, Growth is not always just like a straight line up for these guys, but at the same time, it it happens more often than you think that year two is you're going, huh? (laughs) What? So we'll see. Yep. A year of scouting, a year of film that other teams have on both of them now. So we'll see how that impacts them. That's right. That will be huge. Uh, Our next one of these is also our final one of these on some nobody named Tyrese Halliburton, who just happens to potentially set the Pacers entire identity and future in place. It's going to be a really fun one. And I'm taking those clips off the rails in a different direction than I did for any other skill thing for these. So I'm very excited about that. Anything else today, Caitlin? No, I'm, I'm excited to react. I really want to know what these <laughs> clips are. Now. I've, I've probably oversold them now that I've done this, but whatever. We'll see. Uh, Caitlin is on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper, and I'm on there at Tony R. East. Uh, her Patreon, where you can read these, I'll let you talk about it yourself, but is at patreon.com backslash basketball she wrote. Yes, correct. So if anybody wants to see the clips that we actually talked about, in case you didn't understand the things that I was saying on any of these episodes, you can go over there and click. I have a comment section. You can tell me how wrong I was about things that I said. That's fine. Tell Tony how good he was at all the things that he said. That's fine. No one has ever Um, gone on the internet to do that. Oh my gosh, you were so right. I need to come back and say that. (laughs) Yeah, and then I'm I'm hoping to, next on my agenda is to start looking at some draft stuff if I can access video and find uh, reliable information on that front. So we'll have to see. Some of my access has changed since I've left from one website to another. So I'll have to track some things down. It's a pain. It's such a pain. And it's not, it's, it, there's like a hundred people in the world who actually scout players who don't, who don't have access to things. So of course it's going to be a pain, but you know what? It'll all work out. Uh, this week still coming stuff on the new CBA, what it means for the Pacers, as well as looking at Victor Wembanyama. Very excited to discuss him and get into the intricacies of his game. And could he be one of the best prospects ever if the Pacers land the number one pick? It's all coming on Lockdown Pacers. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you soon.